The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday. And today, I've got one of the most famous, biggest names, and also, oh yeah, one of the nicest guys in show business here on Talk is Jericho. He actually might even be one of the nicest guys I've ever met, period. I'm talking about Shep Gordon. That's why they call him Supermensch. If you look up uh, Mensch in a Jewish dictionary, it means a great guy. He is a super great guy, and, and he really, really is. He's been Alice Cooper's manager for 45 years. He knows everything about show business. He's also managed, get this, Raquel Welch, Luther Vandross, Blondie, Teddy Pendergrass, Burton Cummings. He worked with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. He met Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin on his first day in L.A. He's got some amazing stories, which he'll share with you today. He's also got a new autobiography that just came out this week. They call me Supermensch, uh, which is kind of a companion piece for the amazing Mike Myers documentary called Supermensch. This is the, the most popular guy you've never heard of. Check out They Call Me Supermensch on Amazon. Use those Talk is Jericho links if you do. Uh, like I said, that fantastic documentary Supermensch is also up there. Supermensch, the legend of Shep Gordon, put together by Mike Myers. Uh, you got to check it out. It's also on Netflix or you can get it on Amazon. This is how great Shep Gordon is. I met him at the Clive Davis Grammy party last February. We sat together at the same table and then my family and I stayed with him at his place in Maui over the summer. After sitting with him for an hour, he invited me to stay with my family in Maui. Had a great time and recorded this podcast while I was sitting in his beautiful, beautiful house. You're going to hear the incredible stories of rock and roll legend Shep Gordon. Okay, so um, we're here at this palatial, beautiful home in Maui of Shep Gordon. And it's really funny because... Our first meeting was a classic. One of the story. classics of all time, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I get invited to go to uh, Clive Davis's uh, Grammy party with a mutual friend, Paul Stanley, and everybody is there, like you know, everybody, Ringo, every face. Ringo Starr is there, yeah. and like Nancy Pelosi is yeah, there, like everybody. everybody. But they stick all the rockers in the back yeah. at the same table, and all basically AA. <laughs> yeah. We're the only drinkers. <laughs> We're the only drinkers at the table. It's Everybody Paul. else's diet kept Pepsi's. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Alice Cooper's there, uh, the Chad from Nickelback. Yeah, yeah. And, and you and I end up sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. And we uh, decide that we want to have some drinks. But I think the bar was closed. Yeah, they made it. I think, as I remember, they made an announcement that once the music started, you couldn't get any more drinks. Right. And um, this was right at the edge of the music starting. So um, 
I think you waved over, I waved over, some really nice older Mexican waiter came over and he brought us some drinks. And you tipped him very handsomely. Yeah. And uh, that started the night. And then he came. <laughs> he just kept bringing drinks over whether we wanted them or not. He said, you want some more drinks, boss? Here's yeah. some more drinks, boss. So Shep and I have literally, I think, about eight to ten drinks each in front of us. I started getting embarrassed. Yeah, at a table of all non-drinkers, <laughs> yeah. like ex-alcoholics. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at Paul Stanley going, I really didn't order this yeah. many drinks. But the guy just loved us. He kept calling us boss. Here you go, boss. Yeah, it was, it was very much like a Monty Python routine <laughs> or something, was. you know, or a David... Uh, you know, uh, I can't think of his name, but yeah, it was like so, so, so absurd. Of Seinfeld or Larry yeah. David. Larry, Larry David. David. There you go. That's right. Perfect Larry David. But the funny thing about it is that you and I sat next to each other and just hit it off right off the yeah. bat, which is really cool because, as you know, being in this business for such a long time, sometimes you just get a vibe with yeah. somebody and instantly just hit it off. And that's yeah. kind of what happened. With I had us. been to a couple of. Golden God Awards, where you host, I think they were Golden God. Yes. Where you hosted, and I was really impressed. Mm. Um, we didn't get a chance to say hello. Yeah. But I thought, wow, what a great, um, that's so great that it you know, it could be so comfortable in both worlds, handle both worlds. They're really, in a way, the same world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, um, it's all, in most of the performing arts, it's really the same world. If you're a chef, you may walk in in dungarees, put on your whites, and come out of the kitchen. If you're Alice, you may come in in dungarees and then put on your mm. stuff. And you know, for you, same thing. You go, you put on your costume, you come out. Put on your suit of armor. Yeah. So and it was really, a, it was, uh, I was impressed. So I was happy, really happy to meet you. Yeah, me too. And I'm a wrestling fan. So. See, I didn't even know that yeah. either because yeah. obviously I watched your amazing movie Supermensch and had seen like how much stuff you're actually into, and it's amazing what we'll go through. Your house here is like there's so much cool stuff. I've been walking around looking at all the the gold records on the wall and the pictures and the battle scars, the battle scars. But I didn't know that you were a wrestling. Yeah, fan. as a kid, my dad and I used to watch the Haystacks Calhouns. Okay, and um, Antonina Rocca. Uh huh. Um, loved those. And um, for my birthday, once in a while, he would take me to Madison Square Garden to watch a match. Right. Um, I just thought it was the coolest thing. And then when I started. To get into the music business, I ended up with um, one of my first acts was uh, Blondie, mm-hmm. and the lead singer Debbie Harry was a huge wrestling fan. Really? So we used to go to the garden all the time for for shows. Um, and then later on in life, I got very friendly with um, Cindy Lauper, mm-hmm. who was a huge wrestling fan, and sort of got peripherally involved a little bit. And then Alice. Um, wrestled with Jake the Snake at WrestleMania, I think, three. Fam- famous yeah. story. He was the yeah. second yeah. Uh, for Jake the Snake at WrestleMania yeah. three in the Pontiac Silverdome. Yeah. And the next day, <laughs> um, I went to a, a Sugar Ray, I think, pretty sure it was Sugar Ray Leonard boxing match outdoors at Caesars Palace. And world the, the WrestleMania was so much more exciting, and I'm a huge boxing fan. And it just blew my mind. So I've always been a More pretty, of a vibe at the wrestling show than oh, there was no, the boxing show. The... the um, for me, it's always about the audience, mm-hmm. and the audience was so much more engaged at WrestleMania than it was ear deafening. I mean, like deafening the yeah, boos yeah. and the screams and the yeah, you know, um, and the fight was exciting, but it was just another event. Yeah, sure, sure, you know, sure. These were people at the WrestleMania. People went out of their bodies. They were just nuts. It was at the time the biggest wrestling show of all time. It was nuts. 93,000 yeah, Completely nuts. How did Alice get involved in that? Because I remember as a, as a kid being a rock and roll fan and being an Alice Cooper fan, I just thought it was the coolest yeah, thing that he was there. I don't remember the connection, but I think it may have been because of Debbie mm-hmm. or because of Cindy. Somehow I got to meet Vince 
And I was always looking for crazy stuff for Alice to do. And he used the snake in his show. Right. And Jake the Snake, it just seemed <laughs> it obvious. Perfect, yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, we're doing this big one. And I think Ozzy Osbourne may have yeah, been Ozzy's there that day. Yeah, with the British Bulldogs yeah, as well, yeah. yeah. Um, so it just said it was perfect. You know, <laughs> I said, Alice, you're going to be wrestling with Jake the Snake. <laughs> he looked, luckily, he was an alcoholic because <laughs> he wasn't wise enough to say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> But you just said that you're always looking for something crazy for Alice to do because you we, we talked about this earlier. There's a few managers that started with their guys and have been there the whole career. Yeah. Rod Small and Iron Maiden, yeah. Ray Daniels and Rush, yeah. and Shep Gordon and Alice Cooper. You guys started basically together yeah, at been, the I same time. 40, maybe a 45th year, maybe more. Was he already a band when you got yeah, connected with him? Yeah, they were a band from Phoenix. They had just changed their name to Alice Cooper. Um, they were the Naz. Mm-hmm. But there was a band um, with Todd Rundgren in it called the Naz. Okay. So they gave it up, um, and it just changed their name. They had had success in Phoenix as the Spiders. They started as the Earwigs. They, act- they actually started as a stunt. They were all runners. And when the letter dinner came, they had to do a stunt. You know, it all in high school, all right, the letter sure. dinner. So they decided to be a band. And they oh. got wigs and plastic... Instruments Guitars, really? yeah, and played music and and they loved it. Alice said he loved the girls were like you know he loved it. <laughs> so they because um, originally it was the band was called Alice Cooper. Um, originally, it, yeah. Later on, so they started as started as the Earwigs. Then they changed a few members, became the Spiders, and started playing locally in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Had a top ten record in Phoenix, and like every band in those days, um, you had to get to L.A. To make it. Mm-hmm. It was the L.A. scene days. Maybe New York, but L.A. was the place. So every top band from every state and city would merge on L.A. and try and get to play the whiskey or try and get to play uh, mm-hmm. Venice. or um, the, It was a great place on Sunset. The I Troubadour? You no, know, uh, Troubadour too, but for the rock and roll. The Gazaris? Gazaris. There you go, yeah. yeah. Um, so he came, they came to L.A. for that. They had no money, weren't successful. And a friend introduced him to the Chambers brothers who let him sleep in their basement. No kidding. And that's where I met the Chambers brothers who said, uh, you Jewish, you should be a manager. We got these guys living in our basement. <laughs> they went to Alice and said, we found a Jew that will manage it. <laughs> you got to have a Jewish manager. <laughs> you know, it's quickly funny. I went to, used to go to this place. Um, it was called Mel's. It's, it's somewhere. Mel's yeah. Diner. Yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah. close on, yeah. close to Hollywood and uh, Hollywood uh, 101. And there was, used to be this old black dude eating pie all the time. And he looked like a rocker. Like, you could just tell. And I went and talked to him one time. And it was, I can't remember which one. It was one of the Chambers brothers. Yeah, yeah, I great used to, guys. used to hang out with them all the time, have coffee and some the pie. The greatest guys. I stay, in, I stay in touch with Lester and his kid. I think but um, I, I know I would not be here without them. So they connected you with Alice because you're a Jewish yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. Was, this, was Alice your first protege? Alice is my first act. <laughs> so what did you do? Like, okay, You know, for me, I... The way it actually came down is, um, and this is, uh, I don't, I don't uh, say this because I want other people to follow, but I, I checked into a hotel and I was dealing drugs, and Chambers Brothers were a client, and um, the conversation came up. I think it was Jimi Hendrix, who was another guy staying there, with, who said, um, "What are you going to do if the police ask you where do you get your money to stay in this hotel and have a car?" And as a white Jewish kid. That wasn't anything on the table. Nobody ever asked me where it got. He said, you know, where I come from, if you wear a new watch, the cop on the beat will say, where'd you get the money for the watch? 
So you need a front. You're Jewish. You should be a manager. Hey, Lester, don't you have these kids from Phoenix in your basement? said, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he went to them and he said, I got a Jew who manages you and will give you $10 a week to say he manages you. So they were a cover. I never was going to take it seriously. So this is like when you first moved into L.A. This you went to the hotel to sell yeah. drugs. Gotcha. Yeah, I went as a probation officer. Okay. It lasted one day. I was a long hair. It was the Reagan era. Yeah. I was an acid head, long hair, who was going to save the world. Uh-huh. You know, really help these kids out. And I realized the first day that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, and checked into a motel and ran into all these guys. You ran into Hendrix at the hotel? Yeah. yeah. Well, I ran into the first night. I There was a girl... Um, screaming at the pool around midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I had just come from a jail, Los Pedrinos Juvenile Hall. That's where I worked for that one day as a probation officer. So in my brain, I was thinking rape. I don't know why, because rape wasn't part of my life. Mm -hmm. So I ran down to the pool, and I separated these two people. And the girl punched me because they were making love, and she wasn't getting raped. (laughs) And when I went down to the pool in the morning, it was Janis Joplin. (laughs) You're kidding me. No. So uh, she introduced me to Lester and all the guys, and then they became clients, you know. Uh, yeah. was perfect. And then maybe um, a month into the staying at the motel and selling stuff to everybody, th- this idea of you need a front, you need something. Right, yeah. If, you know, police ask you where you get the money, you can say you're a manager. Mm-hmm. I manage this band. But then, so that was our, the basis of our relationship for the first probably four or five months we were together. With Alice. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, people started getting arrested all around me. The you know people I got from some people I just was getting, getting busted. Yeah, yeah, getting really close, and um, I didn't want to do it anymore. So I had nothing else in my life. Um, so I, Alice came over and I I told him what happened. You know, I said I don't want to do this anymore. Not, no band. When I say Alice, the band. Yeah. The band was Alice. Five Cooper. guys. Yeah. And I said, listen, uh, I've always been able to make money. I'm pretty smart. Um, I think we can figure this thing out. If you guys want to give a shot, I will dedicate my life, if you guys will. Let's do this till either we bust or we're millionaires. And we all shook hands and started to try and learn our crafts. You know, they, they started to try and learn how to really write and do stuff. And I just... Uh, so what was your game plan? Okay, we had got- no game plan hmm. at all. Um, but as we started to talk, um, I went to see him play. They were horrible, in my opinion. Not that I'm a brilliant music man. Mm. I don't claim that. But to, to me, they were horrible. And everybody walked out of the building. So everybody sort of had the same feeling. <laughs> and um, I, had had a, I had gone between college and probation officer. I had gone to four months of graduate school at the New School for Social Research. And one of the professors had given a, a talk about um, in the world of art, Taste is very narrow. So for painters, for musicians, the audience is narrow. But if an artist can catch the wave of social change mm. or catch the trends that happen, for example, what his examples were, um, Elvis Presley couldn't show his hips on the Ed Sullivan Show. Every parent said to their kid, you can't watch it. You tell a kid what they can't do, Every kid goes through a period of rebellion. Um, So if you can catch, if your art, like the Beatles, who were long hairs, like the Rolling Stones, who pissed on gas stations, Mm -hmm. if you can appeal to the kids, but the main thing is piss off the parents enough 
to say you better not hmm. you know you may not hold those kids forever but you get their attention right so I told Alice and the band about this lecture I had had and I said I think it's going to be easier for us to piss parents off than to make hit records and we all know how to do that mm-hmm. um, so that was the basis that we generated everything was what do we do that really piss parents off because if you're dealing with late 60s, early 70s, just the fact that eventually when Alice became a girl, Alice, yeah. a guy with a girl's name. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was yeah. heresy Which was one the of the things that made us do that, to, to hit that point. So all our stuff had a filter. It still does to today, although now it's more comic book mm-hmm. than then. You know, then it was nobody really knew if it was real or not real. Mm-hmm. You know, it was... It was um, did he really, ch- you know, chop was, up? What were some of the ideas? Like, where did the idea come from for the guillotine on stage? Right? Um, just that it was disgusting and chop his head off, and you know, <laughs> let. I I think when I look, it's funny when I when I look back in retrospect. Basically, what we did, and uh, I had I had this revelation. I went to Thailand, and I got taken to a village. Twenty years after we were successful, and the village did a play for me, and it was exactly Alice's show. Mm. which was so weird. And basically what every tribal society has are these morality plays. That they, that's how they teach their kids. And the morality play is always the same. It's a member of the community. Alice, a member of the community. He's a person. Mm-hmm. Gets really evil. Does horrible stuff. In the case of uh, this, this Thai dance troupe, um, they raped and pillaged the wives of other people. For us, we did stuff like chop up baby dolls, um, do all these despicable crimes to society. He'd spit on people in the front of the audience. He'd, you know, stab things, mm-hmm. um, and always dressed in black, um, which was the same in the tribal dances. Always dark, evil, black, or, and then the town would rise up, both in the ethnic plays and in our show. In our show, it was the band who would rise up. Um, and they would take him and kill him for his acts that he did to society, he would be reborn again in white. Bubbles, things, boom, reborn, a rebirth, which is part of every... That's exactly what the show was. And that's what the show was. We didn't... I don't think we realized it until years into it, because if we had realized it would have been easier to write the shows, but they always had that same form. It was only when I went to Thailand I called up Alice... I said, holy shit, we're not doing anything new. This is the oldest thing on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit, like, wow, there was an amazing revelation to see that, you know. Sure. We knew it was morality plays, mm-hmm. but we, I never, so, so things like the, the how do you kill him? So we tried to figure what were the most dramatic, disgusting ways to kill him. You know, if you guillotine him, you can hold up the head with the blood dripping. Every parent will hate that, you know. <laughs> and you get the kids. So that that was really our filter. Did you have to go to a magician to find? Yeah, out we to got that? Um, most. A lot of our things were built by Warner Brothers Film Studios. Then we, uh, through this magician, amazing Randy, we got to oh, yeah. Harry Blackstone's stash. So the guillotine, the original guillotine, was actually the Harry Blackstone's guillotine act. Who's a famous magician? Very famous magician out of Chicago. Okay. One of the most famous ever. Wow, so his, it was his actual gag. It was his actual guillotine that we hmm. found. It was waterlogged. We had to rebuild it, but we were all really proud of it. Um, wow. Uh, so pretty wild. You know, I, I think the best, <laughs> one of the best lines, was, the first thing we did was hang him, and um, that was a Warner Brothers stunt. 
it was a hook on a harness mm -hmm. on the back, and um, they built the gallows for us. And Groucho Marx came to see Alice's show. And when the show was over, Alice said, how'd you like it? He said, liked it, but I saw the gala routine in Chicago, 42. There's <laughs> 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 nothing new. Yeah, 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 nothing new, right? It's just nothing how new. you use it. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Okay, we're sitting here with Shep Gordon, and uh, when did you realize that Alice Cooper was getting so popular? Um... I don't know if we ever, you know, I don't know if there was ever that one moment. You also have to remember that it was a completely different time. Mm -hmm. So part of realizing you're successful is having economic security. And that just didn't happen in those days. Alice headlined Madison Square Garden, sold it out. Top ticket was $2.50. Wow. That's unbelievable. $2.50. I have the poster inside. Um, so, 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 if you so the whole the gross is forty thousand dollars, right? For so, eighteen thousand know, people, we got I think seventy five hundred dollars, um, which was wow. a lot of money in For those sure. days. But no, nobody had, you know. But you also got to put that back. Into where the we station. made money was on records, mm. different than today. Because mm -hmm. if you sold a couple of million records, which we did, you got a couple of million dollars. Mm. Um, so we made money there, but that money gets dissipated and spent. You buy a car. You know, none of the guys had cars. Everybody gets a car. You buy a few clothes. You get health insurance. You know, it, mm -hmm. it gets so. That, so we never. We were always hustling, um, and we hadn't. At the time that the group separated, we hadn't reached our goal of all having a million dollars, which was our goal. Um, I think if we had gotten to there, we probably all would have taken a deep breath. Um, so how is it for you as the manager when you see this band and you know that they're going on the upswing and they can't hold it together and they break up? Are you trying to hold them together? Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. It, it, was, um, it was horrible, really horrible. Mm -hmm. um, on, on many reasons, you know. Personally, I felt betrayed. Mm. I worked really hard, gave every ounce of my life to this thing, um, and um, had, some, you know, had plenty of opportunities to do other stuff. That would have been remunerated me, and I had made, I had given my word, I had shook my hands, mm -hmm. that that was all I was doing until we were millionaires, right? Um, and that if I did anything else, it would only be to help them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, things like uh, the Toronto Pop Festival, I gave up my whole fee to get them on the show with John Lennon and everyone because that was what I promised. The Toronto Pop Festival. Yeah. Uh, it was the first Alice did a show with uh, John Lennon. It's where the chicken. The famous chicken. The famous scene. chicken. Right. Um, Explain that quickly. Uh, that was because everyone knows that story. Yeah, it was completely story. random. It was really. I mean, I wasn't a hundred percent random. We had we had worked into the show probably a year before um, when Alice came back out in white and the bubbles were flying. We were trying to think of what we could do that would be visually exciting, and we had no money. Um, but the hotels. A lot of the hotels in those days had feather pillows, and they all had CO2 tanks as fire extinguishers. So one night I was at a feather. I said, "Alice, why don't we let's take the feather pillow? And the CO2 tank doesn't cost us anything, and when you're going crazy on schools out, we can p 
you know, take the feathers and I have a guy on the side of the stage below the CO2. And in the lights, it'll be fantastic. It'll look like a Hell's a Poppin' scene or some crazy, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it worked. It was great. So we did it every night. Mm-hmm. So when we got to um, Toronto Pop Festival, we were backstage. And there was a, I think you call it feral chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, wild chicken. A wild chicken, yeah. And I saw the chicken and I said, oh, my God, what a perfect thing when he's doing the feathers. If I throw a chicken up on stage, he'll probably throw it out to the audience. It'd be great. We all thought it could fly. Um, but then it would be very cool and get some press. And we we're on with John Lennon, so I'm looking for something. So you wrangled them on the show yeah. to play. They came to me to promote the show. Gotcha. They offered me a third of the profits. And I said, I don't want anything. I just want my act to go on between the doors and John Lennon. Wow. Um, and Which they, is huge. At the yeah, time. And they yeah. couldn't do the show sort of without me. Yeah. Um, they didn't have the expertise. So, um, and they thought I did. I didn't really, but I bluffed my way through. And uh, Alice, went, we had a, we backed up Gene Vincent. They were the backup head for Gene Vincent on the show. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Who's one of the great rock and rollers. For sure. Bebop Palula. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like one of the really early greats. Yeah. Um, so they backed him up, and then they played Between the Doors and uh, and John Lennon. And <laughs> I remember Yoko's face when the chicken got ripped apart by the audience. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so you threw the chicken on stage? I threw the chicken on stage. Alice saw the chicken. He threw it out at the audience. The audience ripped it apart. <laughs> Just ripped it apart. Yoko um, didn't like that. Didn't like that at all. Yeah, she wasn't happy with that. I don't think. <laughs> but <laughs> but what, it got a, that. The next day, instead of saying that he threw the chicken out, it said that Alice bit the head off the chicken and mutilated it, which was the greatest thing they could ever do for us. Because it got every parent saying. This is the most disgusting guy in the world. You better not like him. And every kid snuck out of the house to go see him. It was on it right there. <laughs> <laughs> so when Alice's band finally broke up, did you stay on just with Alice? Did yeah. Alice continue on yeah. instantly, we, or was there some time? Instantly. It was, okay. I, it, we, there was nothing else. You know, it was, he, they were at the top of the They were the biggest. 1972, the Alice Cooper Tour is the biggest tour in, in the history of rock and roll up till then. Wow. Um, there's a great book, actually, if... Um, called um, What I Do in the Back of the Limousine or something. It's about the three biggest tours of 72, which was Zeppelin, Alice, and The Who. Wow. Um, those are great years. And um, So, no, so we, the guys wanted to do solo stuff. Um, they felt, I think, that they were very compromised by having to wear the uniforms every night, do the theatrics. They wanted people to respect them as players, which I understood. My point was, hey, we made a deal. We made a deal. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not there yet. We're winning, but we didn't get there yet. We made a deal. Let's get to where we agreed to go to. And they said, no, but we'll come back in a year. And I was very vocal. I said, you're not getting me back. Mm-hmm. You know, we break a deal. We break it. I'm like, why would I come back? Right. For what reason? Um, don't know about Alice. Can't speak for him. But mm-hmm. um, uh, I worked too hard to come back and get, you know, do it again. But it was friendly. And we were all friends, by the way. Uh, we've nev- uh, we never had one bad second. I don't think, I can't speak for them, but I assume from, you know, our relationships that, that I'm sure that, I'm sure there's some anger. Um, I'm sure there's some jealousy and some resentment. Um, I think um, it's hard not to. You know, Alice's rocket ship took off so hard. Yeah. And we're very sympathetic to it. I just saw uh, Neil Smith, the drummer, just uh, came to the show at Foxwoods, mm-hmm. um, and I was thrilled. I mean, like really thrilled to see him. We were all, we all went through the wars together, you know, and never had a bad word. Um, 
Was it cool when you guys did the reunion at the Golden Gods? Speaking oh, of the Golden yeah. Gods, that must yeah. have been that was the first year. time. Yeah. That was the first That's time. Pretty, pretty much the only time. I think yeah. they do a couple shows afterwards, maybe. We did but... one show afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. But we're talking now, I think I think in September, Alice has a break. They're going to record a couple of songs together, see how that goes. That's cool. And then they they may go out and do some stuff. Does it ever blow your mind as a manager when you see, let's for example, the Alice Cooper band, and they're, like you said, they're winning. They're on the course to becoming even bigger and bigger. But then the guys in the band step on their own tails yeah. of like, because it happens all the time. In, in everything. I'm sure like, in wrestling, there's sure. plenty of guys who are about what, to be stars. What gets you to the dance, and then suddenly yeah. you don't want to do that anymore? Yeah. I think fame and success and all that stuff are the hardest things in the world to deal mm. with. Really tough to deal with. Very few survivors. I mean, I... People I love, I encourage not to get on that roadway because mm-hmm. once you're on it, it's hard to get off it. Yeah, and you know, the, to to win, you have to be rejected so many times. Yes, um, and rejection is just a tough thing. You and then by the time you get there, you don't know why you're there because everybody's rejected you. You almost lose a little bit of the joy of making yeah. it because you've yeah. been shut, you know, cut at so many yeah. times. You have to have super thick skin, yeah. so it's hard to enjoy. To, to enjoy it? No, no, exactly. You know? It's a, it's a. I'm very sympathetic. And having now done this documentary, I see a little bit. I can see it. I have nothing close to any of them, but even the little bit of fame that I've gotten mm. from it and notoriety, I could see how it's, you know, it could change. Particularly if I was still at the point in my life where I had accomplished something. Right. It could really get in the way. Because of, you, you were very well known within the business, but like you mentioned, now that the documentary comes out, yeah. The average person is is learning who you are. Yeah, it's wild. You, Did you, you notice that right off the bat when yeah, it came? I mean, out? it was really fast. Not, it's not often, but it's it was fast. I was in New York. I had a really interesting moment in New York. Um, they were showing the movie at Tribeca Film Festival, and Michael Douglas was interviewing me that night. It was one of the first times they showed the movie, and I was I, I multitask. I love multitask. I love I love walking and thinking about stuff. I love being in my jacuzzi and thinking about stuff. I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loner who does my most effective work when I'm doing something else and I can think. So I, I well, like when I'm in New York, I may walk seven, eight miles a day. Mm. I love it. I walk everywhere. And, and the stuff that comes out of my head gets cleared up. So I, and nobody ever bothers me. So I was walking to the Tribeca Film Festival, and I heard, Mr. Gordon, Mr. Gordon. And I turned around, it was this middle-aged lady, came over, and I could see, you know, she was a little nervous. She said, I work at CNN, I just saw your documentary yesterday, they screened it. Um, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. Um, and she said um, that growing up, she had had a difficult childhood, and um, she really appreciated the way that I overcame my childhood. And... Um, would I mind talking to her a little bit about how I did it because she's having some troubles. And my inclination is to hug her and help her. But I look at my clock and I have an interview mm. live on stage that I have to get to. So I can't help her, which is completely out of my nature. Right. So now I see what is important to me lost in that moment oh. for something that isn't important to me. Right. So I, when I got to the event, uh, Michael, I said, before you ask me these questions, i got to ask you this question. And I t- said the story. You know, and I said, that's one person. I've traveled with you for 20 years. I'm the guy who puts the arm up to stop that person from talking to you. So I know how many want to get through you. Mm-hmm. And I said, and I know there have been plenty of times that I've put that hand up and there's been people in wheelchairs or on crutches or obviously challenged. 
how do you deal with not helping them? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that in, right. as a way right, of life? Right, right. Um, and he said it was really tough in the beginning, and he's become callous. Then he he it's a it's a sacrifice he does for his profession, mm-hmm. but he not one that he's happy about. And the, the sad part is it's gotten easier over the years. It's what we talked about earlier, that, that, yeah. that being on the road to fame, being yeah. famous, yeah. it does yeah, change. It's pretty wild. It's, you, know? you know, you have to really, you can't help everybody. Right. You can't be nice to everybody. You can't give time to everybody. And you lose your own journey in life. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on the, now you're on everybody else's path. Right, 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 you right, know? right. Instead of yours, I'm sure you go through it all the time. And, the, and it's... As meaningless as it may be to the artist, I, you know, I'm sure people come up to you and say, oh, man, I saw you in 82. In, uh, I was with my father. Do you remember I was wearing a green shirt? I was in the third row. I jumped up. You sort of looked at me. Um, and that's important to them. Sure. And it's important for you to allow that to breathe at the same time. Yeah. How many, you know, how many do you go through every day? But it's, and it's something that Ronnie James Dio told me. And I'm, I'm sure you met Dio over yeah, the years. Yeah, Super yeah. nice. Another, yeah. another Mensch. Yeah. Another, who, yeah. who told me, um, and that's what Mensch means. If you don't know, I had to look it up. <laughs> Mensch means a really good guy. Shep is a super Mensch. <laughs> it was actually Paul Stanley's book. He called Bruce Kulick a Mensch. Did he? And I was okay. like, what does that mean? I had to look it up. So, But uh, Dio said, always give people their moment. If someone wants to say hi or, yeah. or wants an autograph, Spend the five seconds and give yeah, it to them, yeah. especially if it's at the gig, because it's the most you, selfish thing you can do. Right? Yeah. yeah, you'll never remember it, but they'll never forget. No, they'll it. never forget it, and you'll have a a good feeling. Yeah, the most yeah. selfless thing yeah. you can do. Yeah. Right. So when you're talking about Alice, and you mentioned you wouldn't do anything until the until the band broke up, then suddenly there's so many acts that you're associated with. Just looking at the wall, like I said, there's yeah, because then I was free. You were free to to yeah. take all the offers, which is what I told him that night. I said, you know, if you want to let me out of prison. I'm not coming back to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I created the prison. I'm happy to live in it. <laughs> was there a lineup of people wanting to work with you? Uh, there was, but I never. My, I, I had a strange career. It's very rare that I started with anyone new. Um, after Alice, how do you mean? Um, oh, starting with a, a new artist. Was, yeah, I was very lucky. As as acts would get the number one, they would call. Oh, <laughs> so I I was able to cherry pick. Blondie called me when they had a number one record. So why would they call you after they have a number I, one? I think, A, because I didn't sign contracts. Mm-hmm. B, I had a reputation as a guy who could really add to a career. Gotcha. And I was cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to toot my own home, but, you know, I got high. I was one, I was yeah, one, of, one, of, yeah, one of the gang. One of the guys. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of pressure. And I had a really good reputation for, for what I had done with Alice. Everybody thought that Alice had no chance to ever make it. You know, and then when I took Ann Murray, which was the first one I took when I got out of jail, and I made her work. Oh, I got out of jail. Like, Holy shit. Why would you take Ann Murray of all? She had a number one record called Snowbird. Yeah. And she was the furthest thing from Alice I could find. Oh. So I decided I needed to find out, was I actually good at this, or did I get lucky? Good, good point. Because um, if I just got lucky, I, commerce was never a problem for me. I could mm-hmm. do other stuff. But if I was good at it, then I would pursue it. Because Ann Murray in the mid-70s, I grew up in Canada. She was massive, massive star. Massive. Was she big in the States as well? No. Okay. Were you trying to get her big in the States? I, I, um, she had snowbirds, so people were interested. Okay. They, there was curiosity. Right. And it was then a manage, uh, you know, to steer the right ship to get her through. But I always knew that it would, her end goal would have to be something like Vegas. Mm. It was never going to be Madison Square Garden. 
Gotcha. You know? um, but that was valid, too. There was a way to, you know, engineer a career for that. Because she was super squeaky clean, too. So squeaky clean. Great oh story. Please tell, tell the story about when you were you trying to get her some street cred? Or what were you <laughs> yeah. trying to do? This is so, so great. So uh, <laughs> I, I, one of the things that I realized with Alice I called uh, guilt by association, uh-huh. which was if you put a famous person next to someone else, the fame bleeds off. Um, I used it with Alice all the time. Mm-hmm. There was... Uh, if you go back through the pictures with Dolly, pictures with Groucho, picture we always Eliza Minnelli, anybody famous, we put him next to. So by proxy, he's famous. By proxy, yeah. he's famous. So with Annie, there was nobody who really cared about her, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but in the in the music world, mm-hmm. she was non-existent, um, especially to the rockers and to the people that mattered. Mm-hmm. Um, she was this white bread thing who had a hit record, and you know has nothing to do with anything chick, current, yeah. anything cool, anything. So um, I booked her into the Troubadour on Thanksgiving, which I thought was really ironic because she was Canadian, <laughs> uh, which is why I did it. Sure. Um, and put this whole big show together. And it just so happened that um, the night of the show, all the guys from the Hollywood Vampires were at the um, Roxy. They had come early. Now, the Hollywood Vampires was this gang of was a drinking rock stars who yeah. just got together and drank. Yeah, just drank, got drunk. Yeah. And... Uh, Luckily for me, got in, there was no Uber, and nobody could afford taxis. So I was sort of the designated driver. So I would come in late at night and drive whoever needed a ride home. I had a 54 Cadillac limousine. <laughs> it was so uncool. Um, so I, I, I realized they were all together. I don't remember how. Maybe I drove by or somebody told me they were all there. So I said, shit, let me go give this a crack. So I drove over maybe an hour and a half before the show. And um, I literally got that on my hands and knees. It was John Lennon, Harry Nielsen, Mickey Dolan from the Monkees, and Alice were there. And I said, listen, I got this girl from Canada. She's so, but, but, but I manage her, and I want to be look like I know what I'm doing. If you guys would come over and take a picture with her, I'll pick you up every night and take you home when you're drunk. If not, you're on your own. <laughs> so they all came with me for five minutes. They didn't see the show. He came in, took the picture. I don't think Annie wanted to take the picture. She was oh, of, yeah. against her, uh, she, against against her, her principles yeah, yeah, at the yeah, time. Yeah. But she took it. <laughs> um, and um, it hit everywhere. We got calls from Midnight Special for her to host Midnight Special. And she was on Midnight Special yeah. from that, right? Rolling Stone did a big piece on her. Everybody, because now she became the coolest chick. It in worked, the world. right? Yeah. She's the one chick hanging out with the Hollywood She's vampires. The one chick of all the out chicks with, got signed by the Riviera in Vegas right away. Oh, so you got her there? Then. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah wow. Yeah, yeah. So it all worked. The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy-six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy-six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Did you ever hang out with the Hollywood vampires at all? Did you ever, uh, a little bit. Spend? I was never a real drunk. I hung out with John quite a bit. Really? Um, yeah, because I, I, I wouldn't call him a friend at all, but... When I did that festival, I, I, I developed a relationship with him and Yoko. Mm-hmm. I was very heavy at the time. I was about 250 pounds, mm-hmm. and they got me to be macrobiotic. Really? And um, I lost 
80 pounds, 70 pounds. I got down to a real weight. Like, no I remember, kidding. I, I remember I got in the bathtub in Toronto the first day I got there. For, and I looked down and I couldn't see my dick. I don't know if I could say that on your show. <laughs> yeah. But it completely freaked me out. Yeah. And I said it to Yoko when I was there. I said, I got freaked out this morning. I was in a bathtub and I actually couldn't see my, you know. And, my uh, schmeckle. Yeah. And she took me to a restaurant in Toronto with macrobiotic. And then I would meet her in New York later on at a place, um, the source, well, not the source. Um, it was a great macrobiotic restaurant. Down, and you sat on your, down on the floor, you know, crossed your legs and. Just yeah. one of those real hippie dippies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they decided they wanted to do a um, a couple of things. So I, I I was working with a guy named Rabbi Abraham Feinberg. Um, when I say working with him, I needed him for the Toronto Pop Festival to do some political stuff. We had to make, and he had done an album. So as a favor to him, I sold the album, and then John and Yoko wanted to do a bed in. So that's who they did it with, was Rabbi Feinberg Fein's to promote Feinberg. the album. Remember the bed in? <laughs> yeah, they would just hang out in bed all day. That was with Rabbi Feinberg, yeah. To promote Rabbi Feinberg's yeah. album. Out of all this stuff, they then contacted me and a fellow named John Walker from Canada who had promoted the first show. And they wanted to do a big free festival. I think it would, they wanted free. But they needed a, to do a festival that could draw 100,000 people because spaceships were going to come down and land and anyone who had a shaved head was going to be taken on the spaceship to Nirvana oh, land. Oh, gotcha. It's called Strawberry Fields was the festival. And they had a guy named Leonard who had com- very complex drawings of the spaceship. It was so Sufis. And they really believed it. I mean, true. John did too? Yeah, John, John Lennon. I mean, this was them. John and Yoko. Really. It's when John shaved his head. Right. That's why he shaved it, was to get on the He was convinced that aliens were going to come. They both them. shaved their heads, Yoko. Oh, Yoko did too, yeah. Remember when they shaved their heads? Yes. That's what they shaved it for. You're kidding me. Yeah. Um, and we did the festival. But during that time, I got to spend a lot of time with them because they had blueprints and diagrams and safety issues. In the end, we drew the 100,000 people. The spaceships didn't come. And they said it was because there were too many non-believers. That, okay. So the spaceships turned away. They, they turned away. Yeah. But they truly believed it. Um, is, is, was this a, a drug thing, do you feel, or just whatever no, they were into? No, no, no. I, I, never, I never saw them as big druggies. Hmm. I mean, John you know, smoked a little, maybe did a little too, but he was an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, Fred, I wouldn't call him an alcoholic. He was, this was his drinking dark period. Right, right, right. Um, but they weren't damaged at all. They were, Interesting. So if they, whatever, had that belief, was it yeah. a cult, a cultic type thing? Yeah, it was weird. This huh. guy Leonard was weird. Gotcha. Long red-haired guy with a ponytail. He was sort of this Bengali guy. Did they ever ask you to manage them? No. No. Never. Not that thing. So of all the other, because you go through, did you, did you manage uh, non-musicians as well? I, I managed um, Groucho Marx. But well, I that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't do much. He just he, he had um, no money. Okay. So I helped to get the TV show back on the air. And we, get we did, his finances Yeah, get his, did an album with A&M. Okay. From Carnegie Hall. Um, Raquel Welsh. Hmm. Who was great? I, actually, Raquel, I think was even before Annie. She uh, might be the the hottest girl ever. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. You could put her in a in the list. It was, but the, a complete prude. Really, which is really wild. No I, I love Raquel. I have an unbelievable amount of respect for her. She really lived her life for her kids. Huh. Um, I can't. I complete respect for this woman. Um, raised two great kids, and hmm. you know. Um, but she called me up, and it was a blind call at the office. And uh, 
was right after Alice's solo record. Um, and the secretary said, Racco Welsh on the phone. I said, yeah, sure, Racco Welsh is on the phone. <laughs> and I said, no, no, it sounds like Racco Welsh. And I'm just, Hi, are you that freak that made that guy Alice? Oh, no, are you the guy that made that freak Alice Cooper famous? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I said, I'm picking you up tomorrow night. You're taking me to the Academy Awards. Wow. Said, Holy shit. So she picked me up. I took her to the Academy Awards. She was wearing this pink chiffon dress. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of media. But there was a guy named Johnny Grant who covered it for KTLA TV. Mm-hmm. And he would come into the limousine as it pulled up. So the door would open the limousine. Johnny Grant's head would go in. Hi, how are you? Coming to the. He'd be the on the spot reporter. Right. Yeah. So as she's, as we get there, and I'm so nervous, I'm sweating out of every horror. My <laughs> armpits are so sweaty. <laughs> and my face is like dripping sweat. It's Raquel Welch. Yeah. I'm sitting next to Raquel Welch. Holy shit. And she turns with a big smile. She says, grab the back of my dress. The class just broke. <laughs> I had this sweaty head. I'm like shaking, <laughs> holding her dress to go in. I had a really funny, uh, Bill Graham sent me a picture. It was a picture in Time magazine of Raquel and I walking in. And it says, Raquel Welsh, which unnamed escort. <laughs> <laughs> but she was very, you know, she said then, um, she was getting older. Uh, sex stars don't do well when they're right. older. In Hollywood, yeah. You know, she had these two kids to raise, and um, she needed to raise them. She wasn't getting any support, and she needed to f- reinvent herself and figure out a way to make a living. Hmm. What did I think? And at that time, Anne Margaret was very successful in Vegas. She was very successful in Vegas. And I said, let's just take the Anne Margaret route. Let's just take two steps behind her. Hmm. You know, um, And that's what we did. Did Raquel sing? She, she, she ended up singing okay by rote. She learned everything by rote. She probably rehearsed eight, ten hours a day, vocal coaches. Wow. Hard worker, man. I've never been around a harder worker. Um, possessed. And, and no natural. And I, this is not nice to say, and I should, maybe it's not. I don't mean it the way it sounds. Didn't have natural ability like someone who just takes to but something. That's, but that's not, not, not a bad thing yeah. to say. She, she didn't have just, natural singing ability. She, that happens. But she got it. I mean, she got it. The shows were great. Did a great job. Headlined wow. uh, Riviera, I think it was, for many years. So this is what you could do is you would see what this person had to offer right. and how to reinvent themselves in a different genre. Try and basically. get it down to a couple of words. I use this example of uh, what, what management at least my kind of manager was. I had these two artists, Teddy Pendergrass, Luther Vandross, which appear to be the same Very artists. similar. Yeah, you would think are fairly similar. So how do I separate them and not compromise one or the other? Mm-hmm. Um, with Teddy, the essence was sex. It was all about sex. It was focused heavily on women, and it was about the animal instincts of women. Is that how you marketed him? That was, that was what I knew was the appeal. Gotcha. So how do you say that without saying it? How do you say that without being arrogant? How do you say that? In a, if you tell people that, they're not going to listen. Mm-hmm. So you need to deliver the message in a way that they tell someone. So what I did with him was for women-only shows. I only let women in. I did really? it in five major cities, the Greek Theater, Radio City Music Hall. Did you sell them out? Oh, yeah. Gave out chocolate teddy bear lollipops to lick during the show so it got you know the tongues out and um then when we went to do the ad we said (laughs) it's still arrogant spend the night with me because that's what we called it a spend the night with me tour it's still fucking arrogant 
but finally somebody in my office in the art department came up with this brilliant idea, which was uh, Teddy's nickname was the Teddy Bear. So we did the cutest little stuffed Teddy Bear with a note on it that said, come spend the night with me, Teddy, instead of having a picture of him. Right. Um, so it was soft. Yeah. But the event was all women. Oh, you know, just just lust. Singing, yeah. So now, how do you separate that from Luther? Luther's romance. He's not about sex. He's about romance. Bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. You know, Teddy's about grab you, take your panties off and bring Bang you. Yeah, right. Uh, so with Luther, what we did is we ran contests in 20 of the top markets in America. Get married by Luther on radio live. It's great. Romance. Mm-hmm. So it became this romantic... You know, if you're getting married, that's what you play. If you want to get ask your girl to get engaged, you play one of those songs. If you go into it, you're making a beautiful dinner for your man, you play one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was sort of what, as a manager, that's what I think is a, an important part of it: is understanding who the audience, who your artist appeals to, and figuring out how to get to him in a really simple, direct way that tells them who he is without telling them who he is. And then you have a you sort of know where to go with everything. You know, with Teddy, I knew where to go because I was always going to the groin. With Luther, I knew where to go because I was going to the heart. Mm, wow. Um, what a perfect way to distinguish the two. Yeah. Because both of them, and, and once again, seeing the stuff on your wall, both massive, massive stars massive, in their yeah. time zone, yeah. time frame, yeah. you know, selling out the seven nights of the forum, Luther's over here and Teddy's over yeah. here. But yet both of them also passing away very young. Very young. Which yeah. is another thing. They're very connected very, in that yeah, way very, as well. A big part of it. I've had way too many go young. Yeah, it's a hard. The fame is tough to deal with. That's what I mean. Like if you're talking about Teddy, I think yeah. you, uh, he was had that car crash where he ended up being being very injured. Paralyzed. But he had two or, or three car crashes that week. So you know that he's obviously partying or whatever it yeah. is. Oh, yeah. Are you telling him, dude, slow down, or does he want to even hear it? Or? Um, you know, I no, I, I probably wasn't in his case. In Alice's case, I was because Teddy never got to the point where it affected. I mean, it, it killed him, mm-hmm. but it didn't affect his day to day routine. He was a pretty happy guy. He got, he wasn't late too often. You know, he was pretty responsible. Did his job. Um, took care of his of his kids. Took care of his mother. Lived with him. Um, he was a functioning human being. Mm-hmm. And we both were party animals. And we both went gotcha. way over the line. Right. You know, was abused it way over the line. This was the seventies or eighties. Yeah, this was And that's kind of the way it was back in the seventies, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's how I signed them, was getting higher than him. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I mean, how do you do what do you do? I, I went to him and I said, uh, I basically, uh, I was asked to go manage by the, by the executor of Groucho Marx's estate, who also was the chairman of Columbia Records. Right. And Teddy had a number one record. And um, he called me up and he said, I want you to go down there and manage him and protect my asset. This guy could be really big. Uh, but if the wrong guy gets him, so I went down, and the show wasn't good. I didn't enjoy it. Um, but I went backstage, and there were 20 Jewish managers, all the best in the business. Ah. So I never even got to see him. So um, the guy called me up, and I said, listen, he'll be well taken care of. It's all cool. He said, no, no, I want you. you got to go back down and actually meet him. And you know, If he says no, then it's a no. But so I go back down, and I, I uh, pull up to the apartment house, and there's a white... Uh, Rolls Royce with Teddy on the license plate, parked in the front. It's an apartment house, and I get in the elevator, go to the penthouse, and this gorgeous girl in a negligee comes and opens the door. But I mean, like <laughs> maybe the most gorgeous woman I had ever seen in my life up to that point. Wow! 
And then he comes over walking in the room, and he's just big, beautiful, you know. I've never seen a sexier guy. He's a big man, too, right? Big yeah. man, yeah. Um, and uh, I said, listen, I'm not going to waste your time. I thought I thought he would throw me out of the house, which was what I wanted. Um, but um, I said, listen, I'm not going to waste your time. There are not a whole lot of things I know in life. There's one thing that I am really sure of. You do not have the chops to figure out which one of us Jews is lying to you. Because <laughs> you got the best talkers in the world. Right, yeah. I said, so I'm not going to give you another one of those spiels. Here's what I can tell you. I can get higher than you. I f*** more beautiful women than you. <laughs> and when you collapse and you got the cash from the show in your pocket, I will be there to get the cash out of your pocket to make sure it's there when you wake up. <laughs> I said, so if you want to do it, meet me somewhere, bring your best shots, bring your best drugs, your women, mm-hmm. who's ever standing. You know, if you're standing, I'm the wrong guy for you. If I'm standing, it's beautiful. I thought he would say, are you out of your mind? Get out of here. <laughs> he said, I like that. What are we meeting? <laughs> so we actually met at a hotel in New York, and he collapsed on the third day. And, <laughs> on the third day. And I've managed him ever since. <laughs> and he, I've never, I never tell that story until he wrote his autobiography. Oh, okay. And in his autobiography, which is right here, he actually tells the story. Truly blessed. Teddy Pendergrass. You got it right up on the bookshelf over here. <laughs> I just got up. <laughs> yeah, if you know exactly where it is. Something tells me you know exactly where the no, quote is as well. I, I wondered if he had a thing back here. <laughs> but, uh, very funny. He says, I never thought of a little Jewish kid from Long Island would get higher than me. <laughs> and he says it's the luckiest day of his life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so when you're talking about, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you're one of the boys and you can get higher and all that stuff. But you mentioned how bad of a alcoholic Alice was. Uh, how did you? Oh, here it is. Oh, you got the quote. Yeah. Okay, here we go. When the last one had gone, I stacked the, stu- the stack of business cards that left behind and tossed them in the trash. What I didn't know that night was that the only manager worth having, a, having a gentleman named Chef Gordon, had taken one look at the line backstage, said a quick hello to me, then split. The fact that he was so laid back intrigued me. After talking to some CBS record executives who suggested I call Shep, I invited him to my apartment. We talked a little bit, then Shep came right to the point. No matter what I say to you, 99% of the people who do what I do are complete liars, and they're good at it too, so there's nothing I can tell you that will help you make a decision. (laughs) Okay, I said. I like what I was hearing, but Shep sounded so different. I was starting to suspect he was a little bit nuts. <laughs> Plus, most of his expertise was in white rock acts. He had never handled an R&B singer before. Teddy, you come up to New York one weekend. We'll take a two-bedroom suite in a hotel. We'll get some women, some booze, and whatever else you want, and let's just party. And whoever stays up the longest, who's ever up first on Monday morning wins. If you're still standing, I leave. If I'm still standing, I'm your manager. <laughs> Deal. We didn't really totally sealed right then, but we agreed on enough major points. And Shep left saying, all right, let's get the wheelbarrows because the money's going to be pouring in. <laughs> ba, ba, ba. Um, I, best of all, I lost a bet. Who'd imagine I'd be outpartied by a white boy from Oceanside, Long Island? But I was, and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. <laughs> we shook hands, and that's been our contract ever since. Uh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and for him to admit that is big. Sure, 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 sure. So how do you approach Alice when you, like you mentioned, the 80s, he was so bad. And he had a big resurgence in the 80s yeah. with poison and trash and, yeah. you know, raise your fist and yell and became kind of Alice Cooper, the guy. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that you had a lot to do with that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I, you know, I, I would say there's a guy named Bob Pfeiffer mm-hmm. who really had the most to do with it. 
Um, I think we we were getting sort of desperate. Um, it, it just wasn't working, and he was working at CBS Records, and he was passionate, and he felt he had a way to bring it back. So he was an exec. Record he was exec. a record executive, yeah. an A&R guy, mm. and he really took it by the hand, and, and Poison, which was a usually important record analysis career because it made him current again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Even though there's a huge fan base that never liked that record, it really brought him back into a place where he could he had enough of an audience that he could continue. Him, once again, at my time, I was probably 18, that they made Alice hot. Yeah. You know, he's on the charts. Made him really made contemporary. Him contemporary, yeah. exactly. It wasn't just a guy from the 70s. Much like Kiss in the 80s yeah. did the same thing. Absolutely. Kiss and Alice, a lot of similarities yeah, in their same. careers. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, so Bob, so are you saying, Alice, you got to sober up? Is that when he got sober around that time frame? I don't, you know, I, I don't remember the, what the, I, 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 had, I don't have, uh, timelines are tough mm-hmm, for me. Mm-hmm. I know that um, he went to rehab, which didn't interfere with the career. Mm-hmm. Um, we timed it so it didn't quite interfere. He came out of rehab, and we sort of continued. Then he went in, he hit bottom, mm-hmm. started using some drugs, bad drugs. I ducked out for a couple of years. Um, I, my office managed him. I didn't talk to him. I didn't see him. Oh, really? Yeah. Just, so he's still officially but, managed by you, but not really yeah, hands yeah, on. I mean, I, Alice and I have the greatest relation. We're so honest with each other. Sure. You know? So I just went up to his house and I said, listen, I'm, I'm not going to work like a dog to buy, to make you money to go kill yourself. Mm-hmm. You want to do it? Your choice? You want to kill yourself? You know my views? But I'm not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also not going to drop you off a cliff. So if you want to use the office, use the office, but I'm out. Mm-hmm. And um, he hit the bottom and called. And that time was sort of a, a rough resurgence, and I think that's maybe Poison came out of that. He had never performed sober, so we didn't wow. know if he could or not. So I got him this little horrible movie in Spain um, to do for four weeks of work to see if he, how he felt about working. And it was, was great. it called? Monster Dog. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which they, they dubbed him in English with an Italian voice. <laughs> it's the, so it's the... Uh, and um, I think that's when Bob came into the picture mm-hmm. um, and really helped. It was, and and um, he brought in a, a writer from Bon Jovi. Desmond Childs. Desmond Childs, who wrote Poison with mm-hmm. him. Um, and, it was, and, and it was also a time when videos were important, and we shot some great videos. Mm-hmm. Um, the Poison video was great. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it was a good time. Kind of put but there've been plenty. You know, I, I think every career, this there's so it's how you deal with the failures that are important to get you back to the wins. That's longevity. Yeah, that's how yeah. you last for yeah. thirty, forty years yeah. in this biz. Just kind of winding down here. I uh, wanted to ask you. I've been meaning to ask you this for the last couple of days. On the wall in the other room, there's all the anthology Beatles mm-hmm. anthology records, and it says you know to Shep Gordon. What was your involvement with that? I, I, um, I George Harrison lived here. I helped George out a little lived bit. Lived here at your place? No, he lived in Maui. In Maui. He loved ukuleles, by the way, right? Ukuleles, His favorite instrument, yeah. yeah. So I got friendly with him, and there came a point in time. He called me up. He started with a phone call about Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm. And he called me up, and he said, uh, I'll leave out the accent because I do it so bad. But he <laughs> said, uh, do you think there's anybody who would do a Ravi Shankar box set? I don't know how much longer he's going to live, and I want to do this hmm. with him. And I said, well, Capital will do anything you want. And he said, they won't do anything. They won't even release our records. 
I said, what? What are you talking about? And he said, yeah, we've, we have some new stuff. They don't, I don't even think they'll release it. We haven't even talked to it because we don't even think they'll want to release it. Some of the Beatles' new stuff. Yeah, and I said, wow. what do you have? And he said, well, they found this thing, Bird is Free, a John Lennon thing, and the anthology tapes. With sort of, and I said, you're out of your mind. Are you kidding me? Do you know how, and at that point, one of my really good friends who I was godfather of kids had just taken the job of chairman of EMI and had never been in the record business. So I said, are you out of your mind? They, you're the Beatles. He said, no, they don't care. To be. I said, what was the last time you asked that? I've never been to the office. Said, You've never been to Capitol Records. Wow. He said, no, no, we've never been. So I said, would you be willing to go? I give you my word. I won't ask you to go unless they commit to a Ravi Shankar box set. But you'll see they'll do anything you want. So he said yes, and we flew to New York, met with them. They, we did the box set. I still get royalties, but we sell like maybe three a year. <laughs> the Ravi Shankar. But out of it came this stuff. Yeah. So um, I woke up one morning. This is maybe three months after they committed to uh, doing the Ravi Shankar box set, but we hadn't finished it. And I woke up one morning and I just said, you know, I think it's time for me to get out. I was managing maybe 20 artists and uh, 100 chefs. And um, I said, I think it's time for me to go. So I called up Alice. I said, are you, where are you? He said, I'm in L.A. I said, would you pick me up for lunch because I'm going to resign from everybody today except you. <laughs> and I want to get really drunk and I don't want to drive. Um, and I had a restaurant called Carlos and Charlie's at the time. So, so he said, sure. And he came over to the office to get me. And I had resigned from everybody. Luther was a little upset. Everybody else was pretty happy for me. And this uh, is Luther Vandross yeah, and Blondie. Yeah, and yeah. Whoever. yeah. I didn't have Blondie. I think okay. I had it separated from Blondie, but it was um, Kenny Loggins, uh, maybe Rick James at the time, uh, Gypsy Kings, um, a couple of African artists, King Sonny Day, Magique Fashik, Pointer Sisters, Luther. A nice, really nice, veritable list. Yeah, of nice roster, list rockers, and all the great chefs of the yeah, world. Yeah, which is another whole thing. So you now I'm done. I'm leaving the office, and my secretary says, "You got it. You got to take this call." And I said, "I'm done. It's over. I'm done. We're closing the office. I'm going to Hawaii. It's done." <laughs> she said, "No, no, you got it." So anyway, it was George Harrison saying they all wanted to put out the anthology tapes, and did I think Capital would take them? So wow. I said, "Do I think they'll take what?" Turns out they didn't want to take them. They didn't want yeah, to take it's a long them? story, but it, wow! Uh, but I got I made it all work. Right. So um, they when you know everything is humans and politics, as I'm sure you have learned along the way of your life. Yeah. And most of the people listening here, if they've been in the world of commerce, realize that um, reality doesn't always matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's human business. The chairman of of EMI at the time was a very nice man who I was very friendly with, Sir Colin Southgate. And he was a scientist who had, EMI was an electronics company who just happened to be in the music business, the hell and Capitol Records. But the main part of their company was Thorn EMI. Right. They made refrigerators and they were an electronics company. They made yeah. like, uh, light bulbs and all the, you know, um, like GE, mm-hmm, sort of like mm-hmm. a GE. So he got hired to be chairman of the company. He's a scientist. He's not a businessman. The week after he gets the job, Capitol Records tell him that they've re-signed the Beatles and that he needs to make an announcement to the, they call it, the Wall Street there. It's called the street. So he holds his first press conference as chairman of EMI and announces that they've re-signed the Beatles. And during the press conference, 
he gets served by a lawsuit from the Beatles. So his attitude was, <laughs> I don't want the Beatles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Give, let like the, the Beatles, Beatles go. Right. Exactly. Like the Beatles. Right. So uh, <laughs> it was a complicated <laughs> negotiation. <laughs> But you made it happen. Made it happen. And those albums are classic, classic, classic ones, right? Classic, yeah, Did classic. you ever have any dealings with the three of them uh, at all, like phone calls or anything like that? Uh, I had. Um, I don't think I ever had the three of them in a room. Hmm. Um, Paul always sent his lawyer. Ringo, I knew fairly well. Ringo actually. Ringo was a Hollywood vampire too, wasn't he? Was he was a Hollywood vampire, yeah. but he also went from here to rehab. Him and Barbara, so I helped sort of from expedite it. Right, right, right. Yeah, they were here and they. The button, the light went on that they were drunks, and they really needed to change their life. And so they left from here to rehab. Hmm. So I was, you know, and George, I knew well. The, the guy who really ran it was a guy named Neil Aspinall. Yeah, yeah. He was the one that really. He'd been with the Beatles since the 60s. Yeah, he was the road manager. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, Shep, you mentioned, everyone says, you know, your book is called They Call Me Supermatch, the book is Supermatch. And I have to ask you this uh, being in show business for as long as you have, how are you so nice? Because that's the thing. You really are like the nicest guy in the world. Like we've had the best time here. You invited my family to come stay with you after knowing you for those two hours. You've had all these great people come by. Everyone I mentioned, whether it's Sammy Hagar or Paul Stanley or whoever. Oh, Shep is the best guy. He's so nice for the best time. How, how, how do you stay so nice? It's just what a, how I am. I don't yeah. have no idea. Um, and by the way, your family is unbelievably nice. Oh, thank nice. you. I hope that doesn't ruin your image. No. The <laughs> rocker, come on, yeah, man. Yeah. No, he's got, his kids are amazing. Thank really you. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wife and kids, it's been a Thank pleasure you. to have you here. I, I mean, for me, again, it's really selfish. You know, I live sort of alone. I'm not married anymore. None of my kids live with me. A couple, three of them have come back mm-hmm. of my adopted kids in the last yeah, few years. Great, so I great get them around. Yeah. They, but they, have, they just came back. And it's great. I get to meet interesting people in a relaxed atmosphere. I get something from them. It's been great to meet you. I'm a wrestling fan my whole life. Mm-hmm. So to see behind the curtain. Yeah. You know, and, it, and most of the people who come through the house or that I deal with have accomplished something in their lives. Um, you know, and it's so great to see that journey mm-hmm. and share that stuff. I feel very, really privileged. And, uh, got an interesting and I've, never, I've never felt like um, ownership is a healthy thing. So for me, I've always felt like the steward of this property, mm. not the owner, mm. which makes it really important to sort of share it and let people use it. And you know, I think here in Hawaii, they really think of the they call it the mana, which is the spirit of your land, and they deal with it like another person, the mana of your land. Mm-hmm. So for me, it really helps the house. It's just again, it's sort of selfish. You know, we, we've had great dinners the last two nights. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. His kid caught a yeah, my son Ash caught a caught a fish that was taller than him yeah that we've cooked for we've eaten the last two days there's an ono that's amazing yeah and like was great so that was exciting you said it was one of the best fish you've ever, ever had in your life <laughs> you know, to see your girls enjoying it so much it's and so great a, yeah that, you know so to have a little oasis of sanity somewhere in the world you know where you know your kids are safe your thoughts are safe um you can be whoever you are you know there's it's it's a good way to be. Like I said, it's very yeah, contagious and infectious yeah, as well. Yeah. And important know. to pass it on. And I'm sure, you know, the the the, the kids. I, I've now had kids who are 25, 30 years that have been coming here, and I can see that it sort of affects the way they treat their homes and mm. their friends and stuff. You know, they talk about it to me that, 
you know. Oh He's, man, I did a party last week. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's like you. I had thirty people over. Everybody cooked and. Well, see, this thing, we live in Florida uh, on, a, on a lake, and we have, you know, right there, tubing and water skiing, all that sort of stuff. And we have parties at our place all the yeah. time, too, for the same reason. I could see your kids are very comfortable in company. Thank you. And, yeah. and why not, if you have a nice place, why not share that with people oh, and have important. everyone come over? Yeah, be, no. Come in I mean, wherever I, you want. I think the world, this sounds very simplistic, but that's the place where the world's problems have to be solved is right there, mm-hmm. you know, in your home. And put out kids that are happy and willing to share and not you know not yeah. not hoarding right <laughs> right not guarding uh, it. yeah last question who's your favorite bands um harold melvin and the blue note was one of my favorites i didn't know teddy was in it wow um the who i love yeah rolling stones unbelievable um beatles of course obviously i would say as an off the wall leo Sayre hmm. is probably who i listen to in my car more than anybody else I love those Richard Perry records. Wow. Okay. And I can sing with them. I'm a yeah. horrible singer. But in the car by myself, I love singing with this Leo Sayer. Everyone's so. a great singer when in the car <laughs> yeah, by yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say those. I never was uh, a hard rock guy, even though uh-huh. I was with Alice. But I like, I like it all. But I would say if you had to give me like two or three records to listen to, it would be Leo Sayer, probably Rolling Stones, and Teddy. Teddy, yeah. Would be to my. This uh, day. Yeah. Shep, thank you, man. Thank you, You man. definitely are the super mensch. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the junior mensch. <laughs> thank you. Nice, great, uh, great joy to meet you, man. Thank you, man. Me too. Me too. Wrestle so many times. Uh, thank you. He really is a super mensch, the nicest guy, uh, not even the nicest in the entertainment business, one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life, period. Shep Gordon. His autobiography, They Call Me Super Mensch, just came out this week. So many great rock and roll stories, celebrity chef stories, just stories of being around the royalty of Hollywood for 50 years. He told some great stories on this show today. I love the John and Yoko stuff. I mean, just a couple of just weird cats, but that barely scratched the surface of his incredible career. You're going to want to pick up his book. You can go to supermensch.com, and of course, you can get it on on Amazon as well. You can also get Shep's documentary, Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon, uh, directed by Mike Myers. That's on Amazon too. And if you do, please use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links to make your purchase. You can support your favorite podcast and the great Shep Gordon, my good friend, in one easy click. Okay, Remember, the Amazon links are at podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. Amazon links in the USA, the UK, the Canada. Every time you use them links, uh, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to the show to help us cover production costs. Remember, there's no hidden fees or extra challenges. Once again, go to podcast1.com, click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page, then hit Talk is Jericho. You'll find all my other great sponsors there as well. DDPyoga.com slash Jericho. Get 20% off the DDP Yoga program, plus three months full access to the DDP Now app. Then there's DraftKings. Use my promo code Y2J to play for free with no deposit this weekend. Then Jack Threads as well. Go to jackthreads.com, enter my promo code Jericho when you submit your trial and get 20% off anything you keep. It's a big thanks to all of you for checking out uh, J- the Jericho Network as well on Podcast One. We're doing our best to keep you entertained. Keep it at 100 with Conan. Huge hit on Thursdays. Team Tiger Awesome. Hilarious every Sunday. Uh, this one coming up, no exception. They're talking beef buddies and sharing stories about the times. They literally wanted to kick their own asses. That's uh, that's up right now. We actually just did one. I think it's going to be on Sunday where we create our own uh, wrestling characters. Um, I 
guest star coming up this Sunday on Team Tiger Awesome. Chris Jericho is there to talk about wrestling. Isn't that what you guys always want me to talk about? Will you get me making my fantasy wrestling character, or is he a fantasy wrestling character? I guarantee you're going to love it. That's this Sunday on the Team Tiger Awesome show on the Jericho Network via podcast one got another big show getting ready to announce in a couple days in the meantime and in between time leave everyone five star ratings and reviews you won't be disappointed don't forget also march 15th 2017 the biggest podcast ever when mick foley joins talk is jericho the countdown rolls on 174 days to go so thank you for listening keep listening for the 60 second ap news headlines coming up next and this uh, next Wednesday, see you next Wednesday when our guest is going to be uh, the amazing and very, very funny Ron Funches. Uh, he did the show a few months ago, waiting for the right time to put him on. He is, uh, he's basically almost like a wrestling comedian. He knows everything about wrestling. Very, very funny. Like 18-time midnight champ on Comedy Central. You're going to love him. You're going to laugh. He's a great, great guy. Great, great guest. Ron Funches will be here on Wednesday. I will be here on Wednesday, and hopefully you'll be here on Wednesday, too. See you then. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big, yeah, boy. Have a safe weekend. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.